Hello, and welcome to the sitcom club. <laughs> that's a good start. I just tried. Start with I, laughter. I don't that's know why we, I just tried. That's how we do it. How many takes is this now? This is this is take number three, if you don't count the other 52. It feels like more. It does, doesn't it? Yes. But we've saved the listener from many an outtake. Maybe we'll compile all these. Why are you are saving all these outtakes? so much? Because today we're doing a gentle comedy. Well, we are. Yeah, we are, aren't we? And but... Before that, I uh, want to go through some outstanding business. Can I just stop you there? We haven't actually introduced who we are or what this podcast they is. They know who we are by now. They, well, I don't. Do they? This is what podcast eleven or something like that. I mean, okay, we should introduce that it is the sitcom club. I've no idea how you wouldn't already know that because it's not as if you're going to stumble across this without having seen the title. But that's what it is anyway. And I'm... somebody might have left an MP3 player on a bus. And the only thing loaded on it is this. Now, I wasn't aware that you knew that that was my latest method of uh, publicity, but I have actually been getting cheap little MP3 players from Maplin, loading up episodes of the sitcom club, playing them, and then leaving them on buses in the greater Glasgow area. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put a little proviso there, just in case um, that there's, there's there's any kind of incident uh, that takes place uh, in the Greater Glasgow area which involves an MP3 player at any point in the future. Um, that wasn't true what I just said, so I don't want anybody coming knocking on my door saying, "Oh, we've got reason to believe that an MP3 player was was used as a detonator or anything like that," uh, and so we're going to take it in for fingerprints. So that wasn't true. But anyway, my name's Mooncat, and your name is. I am. Your old pal Ocho. You certainly are. What are we doing here? Well, later on, we're going to be talking about the Esmond and Larby sitcom Mulberry. But hang on a second, because your agenda's upside down, because you said that you wanted to bring up any other business, and any other business is normally at the end of a meeting, not the beginning. Yeah, but I, I want to start with any other business. I think it's better that way. Partially because, let's face it, uh, Mulberry is a show that has a number of big questions and big answers to those questions. So if you haven't seen it before, I recommend that when we get to talking about that, just don't bother. Don't bother listening to us, because this is going to be spoilerific all over the place. I, I was just going to say, actually, there was no way that we could talk about Mulberry without there being spoilers. So you're quite right. If you haven't seen it already, and you do intend to see it, then pause the podcast, probably get to that uh, section of it. Are but you wanting to tell if me- you haven't seen Mulberry... There is something for you to listen to, because before we get to that, I thought I'd pick up some threads from previous podcasts that I was on, that I wasn't on. Is this an intervention about my Pepsi addiction? No, no, you're fine with that. It <laughs> doesn't have any effect on me. I don't care about it. You're going to tell me off because I incorrectly said that Ronnie Hazelhurst was the composer of the Sorry Fame. Well, you see, I did try to correct that, but I think I mispronounced the name. I, I said Colburn, didn't I, instead of Colborn. Looking at the way it's spelled, it must be pronounced Colborn. Gaynor Colborn co-wrote the Sorry theme, and I'm assuming Hazelhurst was involved with the arrangement. I'm not so sure about that now. I mean, his name was on it, but he might just be in the incidental music. When, when, when Ronnie Hazelhurst passed away a few years back, Matt Berry performed the Sorry theme as a tribute to him on Charlie Butterfield's show, so I presume Ronnie Hazelhurst must have had some sort of involvement in at least the arrangement that was used on Sorry. Or maybe they didn't do any more research than you did. <laughs> No, yeah, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. I'm bang to rights on that. Well, anyway, that's by the by. Dear John, I wanted to mention something about Dear John about the Rick Fortune thing. 
Because as part of that, I did send you a copy of the US version. You did, and the first thing that I said in response to that was, this apartment's quite big, isn't it? In comparison to John's little bed sit, and that got us into a conversation about the size of central characters' living rooms in American sitcoms and how they're all enormous. Yeah, that's something to go into, I think, when we finally do a show dedicated to comparisons between British and American sitcoms based on the same concept. Mind you... The Sanford's living room isn't particularly bigger. In fact, I don't it's even. Nicely, it's nice, though. It's, it's reasonably well lit. Do you know what? I don't actually think. I don't, untidy. I think, I think their living rooms are a little bit smaller than Steptoe's. It's not so dark, though. Well, no, that's true. It hasn't got quite as much. Um, I was going to say tat, but the, the good thing about the, the tat in the Steptoe's living room is the fact that so much of it is, is what you might call sort of collectibles. I mean, things like the bear and the skeleton and the bits and pieces that are on the wall and what have you. Yeah, there's lots of interesting little objets around there. But the big difference in that Dear John episode, something to come on to, and I'm trying to be diplomatic about this because it could offend people. Just come out with it and then once you said it... It just seems so it, much more melancholy to have Rick Fortune be a Merseybeat guy because, one notable example aside, the Merseybeat guys didn't go on to be really cool, did they, years later? The Beatles were about it. That cachet. I'm not saying anything about whether they were worthy of appreciation, but that kind of cool cachet didn't cling to that style of music. Yeah, I mean, I I know that I'm at a bit of a disadvantage here because, of course, unlike some listeners, I wasn't around during that period of time, but I sort of associate that era... In all honesty, I sort of associate it with those performers turning up on 3-2-1 in the mid-80s and still singing the same songs as they were singing 20 years previously, but just looking a bloody sight older. Yeah, and it just seems different, whereas Rick Fortune in The American Dear John, his hit was, I think, circa 1969, and he sings exactly the same words, but he does it with more of a kind of slightly bluesier, slightly more rocking version. As he just doesn't seem to be quite as melancholy a figure. That was my point about that. One thing that I meant to say, glad you brought up Dear John, because I was kicking myself when I realised I hadn't mentioned it. And thank you to Birdie, who wrote on the Facebook wall for the Sitcom Club. And if you're not already liking us on Facebook, please search for The Sitcom Club on Facebook, and you can like us on there. But Birdie replied about the similarities between Peter Blake's characters in Dear John and in Agony. And of course, I'd forgotten to mention the fact that both Peter Blake and Peter Denyer were in Agony with Maureen Lipman circa 1979. And whereas Peter Blake's character in there, because he's the the DJ that works uh, with Maureen (laughs) Lipman when she's doing the the Agony Ant business on the radio. Has there ever been a show where Peter Blake appeared and didn't play the slimy, thinks-he's-cool guy? Well, this this is the thing, because I think I replied to Birdie on Facebook and said that Peter Blake's character in Agony is, in a way, the character that Kirk is actually aspiring to be because his character in Agony is more sort of comfortable with himself. And although, yes, he's sort of trying it on and he's trying to be the cool guy and what have you, he's a lot more at ease and he's not an unpleasant character. He's a little bit overbearing and a bit ostentatious, but he's not going to put his foot in it in the same way that Kirk is, for example. Peter Denyer's character, of course, is completely different. Whereas you could say that there is perhaps a little bit of similarity between Peter Denyer in Please, Sir and in 
Dear John, where he's sort of, you know, just sort of out of place. And, and that still blew my mind until I listened to the podcast. I hadn't realised that was the same guy. Yeah, well, I mean, of course. I was like, that can't be right. Yeah, Ralph in Dear John is. It must be at least five inches shorter than. Yes, I think he's, he's physically different. <laughs> Well, it's I think it's it's the glasses and the smooth down here that do it. Yeah. But, um, he's not all that dissimilar. I think if you, if I tried to put my finger on perhaps one difference between himself and and Denny and Pleaser, it would probably be that I'd say that Ralph is ever so slightly more capable of looking after himself in the real world. Was does Denny always thought really needed somebody with him because he was such a sensitive character. Whereas Peter Denyer in Agony was one half of one of the first gay couples in a British sitcom, which she plays opposite Jeremy Bullock, who is a something of a sitcom stalwart himself and pops up in all manner of different things from that time. And unusually, given the period of time, late 1970s, the couple were not portrayed in a stereotypical fashion. They were not portrayed as overtly camp. They weren't portrayed as in constant angst or anything like that. So they were well-rounded, proper characters. And of course, that's one thing that Agony itself, the series, prides itself on, that it's got a good bit of character depth to it and does challenge stereotypes. But yeah, so I just completely forgot. I actually even had it written down in front of me, Peter Blake, Peter Denier, Agony. I don't recall from what I've seen in Agony, I don't recall there being too many scenes between the two of them, but there's still a few episodes I need to catch up on with it. And keeping on, dear John, I don't know if it's a continuity error. When we meet Eric, he's pathetic and lonely. Where did he get the friends from then to push the caravan into the ditch? Now, this is the thing. You asked me that the other day, and it, yes, I think it most likely is a continuity error. The best that I could come up with would be that whereas Eric becomes Kirk in the one-to-one club, it may well be that Eric becomes a third person elsewhere. It may be he's that, another that club on another night of the week. Questions. Well, yes, it does. I mean, it could be that he's got a serious personality disorder, but nevertheless, it could be that there is a third person that Eric can become, and maybe he's got friends in that group, for example. But then, then it's going to start getting awfully confusing and, and really getting into spin-off territory as in where we should have seen Eric pop up next. One last thing on Dear John. What was the first thing you ever saw Ralph Bates in? Believe it or not, Dear John. Ah, because me too. I'm not a drama buff and I'm not a horror buff, so I've never seen him in any dramas. I know he's been in all manner of things and I've never seen any Hammer horror films. I saw all of Dear John when it went out originally. And so in the last few years, when I've been watching Poldark and The Caesars, it took a moment to readjust. And he is horrifically convincing. I don't know if it's blasphemy, but Ralph Bates' Caligula has the edge over John Hurt in I, Claudius. But then again, the Caesars and I, Claudius are trying to do two different things. Right, moving on from Dear John. Nelly! Hey, you can't keep away from it, can you? Well, I did ask you to send me... An episode that went out on the day I was born. Twice you have asked me, twice you have asked me to send you an additional episode of Nelly since we recorded that podcast. Yeah, one of them went out on the day I was born. One of them had an actress who just keeps popping up on my TV, so I thought, I'll take a look and see what she's like in a comedy. I have to admit, I haven't actually got through that episode. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't even particularly started it. I've kind of zoned out. Immediately. But I just wanted to uh, explain something you brought up. The, oh, what a lovely pair, 
remark. Yes. Yeah, again, I, f- I feel like this is my confessions episode. I don't mean that as in Robin Asquith. I mean, this is my chance to atone for all the, um, Actually, I should uh, the, mention the errors I've made in previous shows. Since that first Nelly podcast, you did send me a copy of the last ever episode, which has the amazing backwards-walking Jack Douglas. That episode is legitimately pretty good. This is the most controversial statement made in this podcast ever since I said I am warming to the right way. That last episode is... It's its not necessarily a high point in British comedy, but it is actually a comedy <laughs> with jokes. Some of them are just people falling over. It's quite baroque. <laughs> it's not one of those where it's like, oh, I can see where this is going. <laughs> it's just like, oh no, my cousin's turned up. Now I'm in hospital so that Jack Douglas hasn't got to play two roles. Oh, it's, I've just remembered it's my birthday. Right, let's have a fancy dress party. Now we've been arrested. Now we're in Trafalgar Square <laughs> fancy dress. <laughs> it just keeps going out and out. I mean, the, It's impossible to predict the plot when there yeah. isn't one. We're into like series 20 of The Simpsons <laughs> style non-plotting. We have speculated that maybe the absence of Hilda Baker had some sort of visible effect on staff morale. I think so, yeah. I, I would reckon so. I would have thought that maybe they just got the word through previously that this was going to be the last episode of the run because, of course, there are only four episodes in that series. Is that There's a trivia question. If anybody can actually tweet us and let us know, is that the shortest sitcom run of a series? four episodes. I can think of a couple of comedy dramas which have only had four episodes, like if you see God Tell Him, but I can't think of a straightforward 30-minute series of sitcoms that only had four episodes. I'm not talking about things like Heartbreak House, which were cancelled, of course. But, yeah, so they might have just got word that that was going to be the last one anyway, and Hilda, with her reputation for not necessarily being the easiest co-worker, she's not there. You've got Jack Douglas, who, as I understand it, was very easy to work with and very generous, working with other performers and also very good at liver. Uh, he's the main man in it. You've got Michael Sheard, excellent actor, and helps to sort of drive the plot along and so on. Yeah, you think that all those things would go into it, and yeah, everybody's a bit sort of last day of term giddy. But one point that you made, you're under the impression that there was a single entendre in there? Yes. Yeah, that's that right. And Alf just goes, oh, what a lovely pair, and just stares at Sue Nichols, the colletage. <laughs> no, he, it is actually a double entendre, because he is under the impression that Nelly and Brenda... Is that the barmaid's name? Probably. He's under the impression that they were both on this tandem that's being talked about. So it it does link up. I just want to clear the name of whoever wrote that line. <laughs> However, they didn't just go, Alf just leers. That'll do. <laughs> but we have actually seen a single entendre since then, haven't we? Because you pointed it out to me. Have we? Um, yes, indeed. It wasn't a sitcom. The other day, for reasons that are best known to ourselves, we were both watching the 1979 Christmas edition of 321. And it has oh, probably the most bastardised interpretation <laughs> of a Charles Dickens novel. This is the thing. They get a story that is so well suited to being broken up. Yes. Into and episodic scenes. And <laughs> And yes, don't. So yeah, we, we need to explain this. So Wilfred Bramble is playing Scrooge and they've truncated it somewhat. I think that the Alistair Sim version on the big screen was that about maybe an hour and 30, hour and 40 Yeah, minutes? they padded that out as well. Well, yeah. Well, it's it's one of the things I don't in... particularly like about it is 
they're really fascinated with Scrooge's past and decide to add more, and it unbalances. Well, certainly no padding in this version because this version has been truncated to about three and a half minutes. <laughs> yes. And also, <laughs> I they just think... do the theme of Charles Dickens. So every single sketch is based on a different Charles. I say based on a different Charles. It has a character in it who has the same name as a character from Charles Dickens. I think that we're being quite generous uh, to say that it's an interpretation. But also, am I right in thinking that it's the the only version of A Christmas Carol which swaps the order of the appearance of the ghosts because normally it's Christmas... No, the uh, Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol switches past and present. I think he experiences the ghost of Christmas present first and then goes from past to yet to come. Okay, so this one has Christmas past, then Christmas future and then Christmas present and it's at the appearance of Christmas present that Wilfred Bramble comes out of his single entendre, which was basically four. This version also emits Bob Cratchit, Belle, this is just Marley Scrooge, and three ghosts. <laughs> and Wilfred Bramble going, Bleh! and that's it, the end. I mean, we haven't really <laughs> got much out. <laughs> I'm not so sure, you know, that Scrooge really learned a great deal from the experience in that version. I don't think that he's going to change his ways. I think that he was more interested in just trying to get off with the three, two, one hostesses, and that's effectively the the the. Is there a model of the story in this case? I don't think there is. Is there? Um, no. There's, there's, there's no moral, no message, no plot. And the worst part of this is this was on spoiler alert. By the way, if you don't know if you don't know how this episode of three, two, one ends, make a lot of noise just now and pull your earphones out. But this was going on Christmas Day. Where hey. Fun and games, what have you, all light-hearted japes. The couple won the bin, for God's sake. They didn't even win a prize. They, they rejected the car and they got the bin. On Christmas Day, I ask you. Good God. Anyway, <laughs> do we need to do at some point, do we need to do the, the quiz show club? We can review episodes of Three Two One. Oh no. And no, punchlines with no, Lenny Bennett. No, no. If you can get any volunteers. You We've got I'm an episode of The Golden Shot, haven't we? With Charlie Williams, we need to review that. Oh yes. Oh dear. <laughs> First oh series dear. bullseye. That episode of Mr. and Mrs. where they run out of contestants and have to have a sing song. <laughs> you know, Border Studio was tiny. They managed to get an audience. It was about the size of Prez A or Prez B in TV Centre. Well, that, that episode was. Basically, they had a studio smaller than a weather studio. <laughs> That episode I was talking about there, that was no fault of Borders, that was the HTV version. Border television would have been run as a tight ship with Derek Wait, Beatty Wait a minute, you're talking about something that really happened? Yes! Wow, I'm sorry I just thought you were being whimsical. No, 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 no. This, is, this is legitimately, <laughs> if, you, if you wish to research this, just use your local library card, go into your local library's website, search the Times Digital Archive, and you will see this being reviewed by none other than Joan Bakewell in the Times. And I think it's 1978 and she refers to the fact that Mr and Mrs had gone out on Thames one evening. It's the HTV version with Alan Taylor and at the end of the show, Alan Taylor stares blankly into the audience at which point there is an obvious jump cut and then they all have a sing-song until the show's done. (laughs) (laughs) This is, along with Live Into 85, the ill-fated Hogmanay show, 
from BBC Scott. Chaos. And episodes Absolute of chaos. that, yes, and episodes of that Peter Cook chat show, which I think one of them exists in audio. This Mr. and Mrs. episode is right at the top of my list of things I want to see one day. So, one last point. Chuck Cunningham syndrome. I can think of one more example that uh, you didn't pull out. Now, of course, we did say that true Chuck Cunningham syndrome is, if not absolutely unknown, so incredibly rare, I can't think of any examples of a situation where not only is the character written out, it becomes clear later they never, ever existed. And that's the thing with Chuck Cunningham. Not only does he go with no explanation, later series, the Cunninghams only had two children. I can't think of any examples like that, but Ever Decreasing Circles contains a character called Tommy Cooper, played by Ronnie Stevens, and he vanishes after series one because the real Tommy Cooper had died, and I guess there's probably a slight feeling of too soon. Because this was early 84, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 This is not really Chuck Cunningham at all, so I'm not even sure why I'm mentioning it, but it was in my mind when I was discussing this with DCT the other week, and I meant to bring it up but it just slipped my mind. We got onto the subject of examples where a cast member changes. And of course, that isn't Chuck Cunningham syndrome. Well, I got that a good one. Quite a bit. I got, got a good that. one. We've got that coming up, of course, in Mulberry. We've got, That's uh, the one. Because okay. it's beyond that. Because of the way series one and two are written, not only is she recast, it's only later that same day. That's well, you know, that's really that's really spooky that you've just said that because that was what I was going to mention there just now with regards to characters being recast but still staying fundamentally the same character. Many 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 years ago, I'm talking about late eighties, early nineties, we had an Australian supply teacher come in to our school, and he was asked what was going to be happening in Home and Away and Neighbours in the coming months, because he'd just come from there. So he wrote it all on the blackboard and so on. He explained it. It was quite detailed. It looked like a huge mathematical equation. But anyway, one thing that he said, which was untrue, I'm not sure if he misremembered it, if he was deliberately having his on. He told us that the actress who played Pippa in Home and Away changed. Now, that bit's true. That bit's true. But what he said was... <laughs> What he said was that Pippa, original actress, bends down to the oven to take some biscuits out of it, and when she pops back up, it's a new actress. It's, it's so untrue. It's not like that at all. What happened was that at the beginning of an episode, Pippa is at the oven, played by the new actress, but they didn't do it in the one single episode where Pippa says, oh, I think they're done now. Ding! And then appears on the and he says, who the hell are you? What have you done with Pippa? <laughs> But, I mean, if it was up to me, that's exactly how it would have been no, done. No, but we'll, I'll mention it now. The, the thing about Mulberry is Series 1, Episode 5, Series 1, Episode 6, Series 2, Episode 1 are basically one 90-minute episode because Series 2, Episode 1, the first scene takes place a few minutes after the closing scene of Series 1, Episode 6. Well, you know what? Well, let's talk about Mulberry. Yes, let's so do that. So here be spoilers. Tell you what, what I'm going to do, I'm going to throw in a few other bits and pieces here just now. So I'm going to do the end credits first, in case people are going to switch off at this point. Okay, so quick bit of business. This is Last Sitcom Club 
for a few weeks. I'm going to take a little brief summer break and we will be back probably in August with a whole new batch to see us towards the end of the year. But if you haven't already heard all of the episodes, do have a wee look. They're all there. They're all on iTunes or on the XML feed. And we've got about, I think you mentioned before, we've got about 11 or so podcasts in the list already. And also just a big thank you to everybody who's been involved in it so far. Thank you to yourself, Ocho, and to Bogginstrovi and to DCT for all the time that you've put in. And thank you to everybody who's been listening and supporting us from day one all the way back to when we were on uh, Cooked and Bombed um, and all our regular listeners and all those who tweet us and Facebook us and so on. If you don't already follow us, we're Sitcom Club on Twitter and we're The Sitcom Club on Facebook. Okay, so we're going to start talking about Mulberry from now till the end of the show. So if you haven't already seen Mulberry and you do intend to see it, then please stop listening now. So, Mulberry. Yes. Well, I'd watched, I watched it, another one of those I watched when it went out originally in the early 90s. You'd not seen it before, had you? I had never seen Mulberry. I must have stumbled across it at least once because the only thing I knew of Mulberry was the fact that Carl Holman sang the theme tune, but I never actually watched it at the time. And I suspect that, given the fact that it is a show with an overriding story arc and narrative and so on, that it's one of those ones where if I hadn't started watching it at the beginning, I would have felt I was wandering in halfway through and, and probably been a little bit lost. A story arc that never finishes. It's so clearly written. Episode 1 of Series 2 places a time limit of three months, basically going to be... So if if we sort of say that's when the time limit is placed and it begins with the next episode, another six episodes, then another seven episodes. So this is a 20-episode show that finishes at 13 episodes. Yeah, such a shame, and and I finished watching the final episode of Series 2 earlier on today, and of course, there's no other way to describe it, it's anticlimactic, because it couldn't be anything else. You know, I I was aware that there was supposed to be a conclusion that wasn't going to happen, it didn't put me off watching it, but yeah, I mean, we're discussing the, the, the show in its entirety right now, so there's no harm in just discussing the ending and the proposed ending at this point. I'm in two minds about it, to be honest. You sent me a nice little clip just before we started recording of Bob Larby, the co-writer, explaining what would have happened at the end of the show. And, of course, the unsurprising thing, of course, is that that's exactly what you would expect. You know that Miss Farnaby, at some point, was going to pass away. And the show's so nice that... I don't. I don't feel bereft for not having seen that. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you, I, I know. You think I know. It that, might I know have actually soured it slightly. Well, the thing is that I'm trying to think of another. I'm trying to think of another example of something. I okay. Well, I'll give you. I'll give you one example. Rock and Chips was on a couple of years back. Came to an end abruptly because, of course, John Sullivan died only after three episodes of that. Now we know from Only Fools and Horses that Dell's mum dies relatively prematurely and as a show I enjoyed it that much that I sort of felt I'm not particularly going to enjoy that episode uh, I know it's coming but I'm not particularly going to enjoy it when it happens and the same sort of thing was going through my mind as far as Mulberry was concerned, we know how it's going to end there's, there's no question about that there could be a swerve, there could be a huge swerve and, and something you don't see coming but the chances are not I mean what, what were your thoughts, what, what did you think about it how do, how do you feel for not having had that first series well, yeah, this is, this is an interesting thing because it's a point about television on which my wife and I disagree. My wife likes things to go up to the end and maybe even hang around a bit. 
one thing that bothers her is um, she's a big fan of the Midsummer Murders books, and the TV show is not really that great of an adaptation makes it a lot broader and one thing she likes about the books is it's like yes and we caught the murderer and the murderer got this sentence and the other characters who didn't get murdered and didn't murder anybody here's what happened to them i am perfectly happy for things to end a bit before the end and one of the shows that would have been interesting if it continued is enemy at the door the london weekend television chuckle fest I have to, again, clarify this. Uh, recently, Amunkat and I came into possession of some scans of old copies of the TV Times. And it's always fun to flip through and see what time things were on, what the reaction was at the time. Enemy at the Door is about the Nazi occupation of the Channel Islands. Every episode requires a trigger warning for everything. Everything bad or traumatic that's ever happened is in there somewhere. I don't think there are any happy endings. Every episode has some nice character getting destroyed emotionally or killed or destroyed emotionally and then killed. And to make things even it's worse... It's all that Jeffrey Fairbrother's bloody fault. Well, yes, yeah. To make things even worse, not all of the German characters are completely unsympathetic. There's a few cases where it's like, well, you know, I just joined the army and then the Nazis took over. And there's there's a couple of cases where it's like, oh, I was drafted in and I do not want to be doing this. I'm not even happy about being a soldier, never mind being a Nazi. So you can't even root against. There's only a couple of people to root against. And it ended after two series, despite the fact that the end of series two sets up a couple of interesting plots to come. Now, I'm perfectly happy with the fact that it didn't go right up until the end like the liberation of the Channel Islands. My wife is disappointed in that. She would like to have seen it. But I mean, apparently, by the end of the war, it would have just been people eating their pets or starving to death, really. Funny you say that, because now you're the drama buff, so I'm probably going to get this wrong, but I've got vague recollection of having read up a couple of years ago on the internet about was it Secret Army? Is that the show that had a last episode that was then canned? Yes. And never I've never seen Secret Army because the only option is to like spend about 100 quid on the complete box. Or it was the last time I looked. Or it's one of those situations. I don't want to buy one series and then think, yeah, I want to see the rest. Now I have to buy the complete series and I have a spare series one box lying around. That's what happened within Loving Memory. Yes. So anyway... My wife's perfect episode, last episode of Enemy at the Door, would be VE Day, maybe even, you know, beyond VE Day. Whereas for me, I'd be happy for it to end at that point where the Normandy invasions happened and it's worked. And for the Germans and the Channel Islanders to look at each other and go, this is not going to be good for either of us. The end. I'm happy for the sword to hang there. I don't need to see it fall. And at this point in proceedings, I've had to record a little bit of an insert here because I started out on a point that I never finished and I realised this while I was editing the podcast so here is the end of the point I was trying to make recently Mooncat and I acquired a series of scans of old TV Timeses and I found that this TV show Enemy at the Door extremely depressing and distressing and dark and dramatic and other words beginning with D Saturday night 7.15pm straight after sale of the century. I just thought that information 
was worth sharing. And now back to the Mulberry chit-chat. So in the case of Mulberry, I'm not too bothered about that. But what does bother me is it doesn't even get to the shadow being cast over the situation. The closest that we get is the fact that Miss Farnaby's sister, Elizabeth, I think it is, she has detected a ghostly presence. So somebody deathly presence. Yes, big pardon, yeah, deathly presence. So somebody has at least detected that there is something about Mulberry, but that's as far as it goes. Should we, uh, we start should, we explaining should... this from page one? I was going to say, because we Because we we're to... assuming that everybody listening is au fait, they might just not be bothered about having it spoiled. Yeah, for the in-betweeners, the people who Isla have no interest in seeing it at all, probably aren't listening to us, and the people who want to see it but haven't seen it yet would have stopped when we asked them to a few minutes ago. So for those people in between who could quite happily watch the odd episode here and there, we need to explain who Mulberry is and who everybody else is. Well, for a start, dear listener, are you familiar with the concept of the manic pixie dream girl? Have you been spending enough time on TV tropes, Mooncat? Well, I've been browsing it more since we were actually discussing Chuck Cunningham Syndrome, but I haven't got to the manic... What did you say it was? Manic, manic Pixie Dream Girl. It's a very familiar type from rom-coms, borderline rom-coms, which is, of course, that free-spirited girl who just sees some poor, nebbishy, lonely ah, guy and says, hey, I, I can see, turn I your see. life around. So Mulberry's really the Manic Pixie Dream Guy. He's quirky, he wears fancy waistcoats, he wears weird kind of riding boots over his jeans. Gives him this very distinctive look. He acts strange. He doesn't want to talk about where he came from. He applies for a job before it's been advertised. Shades of Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins is a good comparison to begin with, only it's the other end of the scale. An older woman lives in her family home with two servants and yet another personal maid has quit. The two servants... Bert and Alice are a married couple who have been there since they were children. They were uh, evacuees during the war. And so this time, instead of another young woman turning up for the personal maid job, a weird guy turns up. Now, this is the thing, because you had been suggesting to me for a few weeks, but see, because as you said before, I'd never seen it before, and you've been suggesting to me for a little while, why don't we discuss Mulberry? And I I watched episode one. There was a long gap before I actually got around to watching episode two. When I got to episode two, within about 10 minutes of it, I was really not getting into it because Carl Hoban's character was really putting me off at that time. I knew that there was something going on because he'd had this conversation with a character who is listed as The Stranger in the credits. He had this conversation with him just briefly in episode one about the fact that he was there to do a particular job, but that's as much as we knew. So I knew something was going on, but otherwise, as you just described it there, about the the manic pixie girl and so on, that's how I was sort of thinking that Mulberry was going to be. He was just going to be this sort of, maybe he was going to be like a criminal on the run or something like that, but he's going to have some sort of backstory that we're eventually going to learn, but he was otherwise going to come in and make everybody's lives so, so wonderful and so on. And I was finding him quite irritating, the fact that he did sort of talk in riddles, and didn't take things very seriously and so on. I mistakenly thought I had the measure of him quite early on. but I want I to toss something in here. Something I read a lot and I've not found again. I read it a long time ago somewhere on the internet and I haven't been able to find it since. So I could be misremembering, could be remembering accurately but I can't verify it. I read somewhere somebody said that initially Esmond and Larby had had this idea 
and Mulberry will be played by Tony Selby. Now, I'm guessing it meant that they had the idea a lot longer ago. Fine figure of a man, Tony Selby, but I think Mulberry needs to be slightly younger than Tony Selby was then. And I think he would have grounded it a little bit more. It's just, it's just a slightly earthier way of playing things, or his general way of doing things is usually a bit earthier than the way Carl Howman takes in this. But I can see I can see it going either way. I think he would have done a good job, and Carl Howman does a fine job as well. And Carl Howman, I suppose, would have been best known to viewers at this particular point playing Jacko in Brushstrokes, because he'd been doing that right up until the year before Mulberry began. And he was that sort of friendly, sort of jack-the-lad figure. And he's not all that different in Mulberry, but the fact that he is... Yeah, he's a little bit more... He's a bit more of an enigma. I mean, when we first see him, he's wearing his outdoors outfit, isn't he? His outdoors outfits and his indoors outfit are two different sides of the character, because indoors he's, you know, got the fancy waistcoats, the boots. He's always kind of Doctor Who-ish. When he's wearing his outdoors outfit, he's got this hat that covers his ears. He, he looks like El Chavo del Ocho, actually. And this overcoat that goes down to the ground, and he looks like a little boy who's wearing clothes that he's inherited from an elder brother. And we still, by episode two, we still haven't quite established what it is that he's doing there. He started to bring Miss Farnaby out of her shell because Miss Farnaby has effectively cut herself off from the outside world. Miss Farnaby has two siblings and we, we understand that, that there is a bit of family rivalry going on there and she's got this huge house to herself now. She cuts quite a, a lonely unhappy figure and doesn't make life very easy for Bert and Alice as a result but Mulberry starts to bring her out of herself and get some more integrated into the local community events and so on I thought this was going to be yeah eventually it's going gonna, it's gonna to sort of one of those things that just runs and runs and runs you know Mulberry eventually becomes oh you're like part of the family and what have you and oh what did we ever do before you came and all that kind of thing but we realised early on with his conversations with the stranger, we realise that he is in some way we don't know what yet, but we know that he is some sort of presence. We know that he is not quite of this world. That he's been put there. He's been put there for a reason. And we realise that the, the reason he's been put there is to oversee the departure, so to speak, of Miss Farnaby. And episode 4 makes it look like he's just going to kill her. It actually does raise questions that'll come to later when they're talking about going to France and John Bennett's character says, Eiffel Tower, nice high building. But they pretty much know that this is the way it's being led because there is that line in, at the end of episode five, I'm not a gangland boss and you're not my hitman. That seems to have been put in there to, <laughs> because it's like by this point, some people will have twigged, but some people will definitely think that he's a gangland boss and Mulberry's his hitman. Yes. Let's make that absolutely clear. And he does, I mean, at the end of episode five is when he actually spells it out and says, I'm deaf. Now, one of the questions that raises is somebody dies at uh, the dinner party in episode five, and it's just like, I oh, just open the door and let him through. And it's like, well, hang on a minute, episode four, you seem to be suggesting Moby take a very active part in this and push her off the Eiffel Tower. Metaphysics are a little bit tangled. Well, is it not that deaf himself? being an old hand at this. Um, oh, I see. It's, he can, it's he can do a delicate touch, but Mulberry's going to have to be a bit more brutal for yeah, his first job. This, yes, 
because this, this is, I presume this is, he's intending it to be like a baptism of fire, and he wants to sort of make Mulberry immune to this because it's something he's going to have to do repeatedly in the future. Because he does, he does say quite often, "When I retire." Whenever he's right, yeah, weird when I retire. <laughs> so, have, yeah. are, are you the original death from all time, and you're just now retiring, or are you like the five millionth person to hold that job? <laughs> yeah. What What is the What is the family tree of death? Well, that's where it gets really kinky in episode six of series one. He's like, "Okay, right. It's a metaphysical concept. It's supernatural. I'm with you there." And then it's like we find out who Mulberry's mother is. Yes, that's right. And his mother is Springtime, which um, Death does say was a dalliance in his part. This this raises even more questions. What was that courtship like? <laughs> well, didn't Death try to introduce Mulberry to Pestilence's daughter at one point? Yeah. Now those are the points where it's almost beginning to stretch it to snapping point. It's like so, so what? There's a whole bunch of these anthropomorphized concepts and their kids why do the kids not get well i don't know what kind of name can you give somebody with that lineage yes <laughs> still there's plenty to talk about as an idea there's certainly a lot of potential for mulberry fan fiction yeah well I'm, i was thinking in in series three maybe we would see somebody else from mulberry's side of existence well do we think that perhaps we would have seen more of Springtime? Because we do see a brief appearance by her at the beginning of Series 2. Yeah, he, he seems really touched. He's he's hey, where the hell have you been all my life, Mom? You yes, deadbeat. And honestly, I'm going to admit to this, and I'll probably take a, a hiding from it on Twitter, but actually that point in that episode, had that scene gone on any longer, I probably would have started welling up, to be honest. When he realised it was his mum and said, Mum, yeah, it was, it was a really, really nice little moment. I was getting quite I was annoyed surprised. myself. Were you? Yeah. <laughs> but but so, well, the, the question inevitably comes up. Right, you can just pop into a greenhouse. Oh, no, actually, I answered it later in my head. <laughs> my initial thought was, oh, right, so you can just pop into a greenhouse, just go anywhere, but you can't visit me at least once, mother. So what What you're saying you is instead of him saying... For my entire childhood, I am now a fully grown man, and only now... But then something else occurred to me. How old is Mulberry? I just I want to make one point about the, the script editing here. <laughs> Had you been the script editor on this, rather than that point at which Mulberry, his bottom lip starts quivering and he says, Mum, you would have had him say, where the bloody hell have you been? <laughs> I think, personally, I think that would have spoiled the moment. Well, uh, I th- it, I think it occurred to me somewhat. later, though. When was Mulberry born? How old is Mulberry? Is he maybe only a few months old? Because, of course, it starts in autumn. The second episode is the bonfire, right? So, yeah, it starts in winter. It's November. And maybe springtime kind of, you know, keeps out of the way until about March and has difficulty manifesting. Maybe Mulberry was born at the end of summer or something. And she she can't actually be around much through winter. Is that why she appears in the greenhouse? Because that's where she appears. Yeah, because that's basically maybe the only place she can appear. Ah. I wonder. Yes, that's possible. Yeah, yeah. Do we think then in series... Actually, before we get into what might have been, we need to just get people caught up then. So series one, we have established that Mulberry is the son of death 
and that this is his first job, so to speak, and the reason he's been put there is to see Miss Farnaby away. He's then granted an extension, so to speak, because he's become very fond of Miss Farnaby, so he's granted an extension of three months. But at the beginning of series two, Death then reminds him, you don't need to be here. I've given her an extra three months. I didn't say you had to be here for three months. That's the only point also at which we actually see really anything approximating any kind of supernatural activity, apart from the fact that we briefly see springtime and she makes the, the hyacinth plant grow as if by magic. At one point, when Mulberry says to his father, what if I disobey you? What if I say I'm going to stay here? And he clicks his fingers and basically says, well, I can put you wherever you want, and then uh, does so. It makes him just appear somewhere else. So that's that's really the only supernatural element that we actually see, isn't it, in any point in two series. So series two continues on this theme that the there are these three months which are ticking down. But as far as the actual storyline itself is concerned, that's really as far as we get with that, because as you said at the outset, this was intended to be a three-act play, but the BBC decided to cancel the show after two series, which just left the story unresolved. Yeah, and the other interesting thing, something I thought was going to happen didn't. When I say I, I don't mean as a plot point, I mean as an outside-the-story point. Generally in something like that, and I can't think of any specific examples... But I'm just, it must have happened so often I'm used to it. Usually, certainly in sitcoms, sometimes in dramas, you get that ending episode of a series and somebody has come in and changed everything. And then when the series comes back, everything slips back a bit. It would not have been surprising if series two started with Miss Farnaby just being as crabby as ever, somehow forgetting everything that had happened. And just every single week, it would just be Mulberry comes up with a harebrained scheme, Miss Farnaby doesn't want to go along with it, and yet she does. Series 2 is not like that. Series 2 starts with Miss Farnaby is initiating things. And as you said, Series 2 picks up exactly where the end of Series 1 left off. Mulberry has finally convinced Miss Farnaby to go into town uh, on the tandem bike. There is a comedy device known as the bicycle joke, which I believe in the US is called the Gilligan Cut. The idea being is, there's no way you'll ever get me on a bicycle. Cut to the person riding a bicycle. They actually do that with a bicycle. Yes. <laughs> it seems so rare to see the bicycle joke being used with a bicycle. <laughs> but yeah, but even even stranger to see... Can you think of any other instance in which a first episode of a series has picked up not just the plot and the, the circumstances from the preceding series, but literally the scene. They've ridden into the town on tandem, and then we begin series two, and there they are, coming out of the shop, bag of jelly babies, just and, like Mulberry suggested. episode six, series one, has already started immediately after. It's later that night of the dinner party into the following morning. So like I say, it's one 90-minute episode. <laughs> I wasn't... Were it not for the fact that the actress playing Alice changes between series one and two, if this was like a rerun on, on Gold or something like that, you wouldn't actually know. Apart from the, the copyright date, you wouldn't know that it was uh, a new series, whereas quite often things like that stand out like a sore thumb. Suddenly, you know, people's fashions have changed or uh, whatever it may be. But aside from the fact that in series one, Alice was played by Lil Ruffley, and series two is played by Mary Healy. Yeah, there is uh, really no visible change at all. Maybe Tony 
Selby got his hair cut or something like that, but aside from that, that's it. I did actually think that Alice in Series 2, as portrayed by Mary Healy, is slightly... Um, More put upon? Yes, and she's not quite as as harsh as sometimes. No, which is interesting for a plot that comes in later. A plot that comes in later that has nothing to do with the central concept. There are a couple of places there later where it has turned into a fairly normal sitcom with John Bennett just yeah. turning up and scowling occasionally to remind you of the supernatural element. I think there's also one or two episodes where John Bennett doesn't appear at all. Yeah. Including, I think, the last episode of the, the series. But yeah, I was going to ask you about this because even though we have this missing series free, and obviously this is with the benefit of hindsight because course, they didn't know when they were making series two that there wasn't going to be a series three, but there are some filler episodes in here. There's one episode where Miss Farnaby is trying a bit of matchmaking with her relative and Mulberry. And of course there's that episode, like you say, with um, Alice going off for secret visits to her friend, which you can remove from the running order and have, would have no impact at all on the the story arc. Well, the Alice one, yes. The Alice one is the one that's most disconnected from the central thing. While the matchmaking and the football stuff is disconnected from the whole idea that Miss Farnaby's going to die, it is at least still tied with the idea that Miss Farnaby is becoming more active coming out of her shell so while it isn't always a sitcom about the son of death the second series does at least have the benefit of still being a sitcom about what happens when somebody decides to re-engage with the world after years away yeah and just to pick up on something you said just a moment ago i really like the fact that it is a serial uh, as much as there is an overriding narrative. I like the fact that it doesn't just all revert back to square one because it could so easily become Miss Farnaby is cantankerous and in our shell and so on and then Mulberry suggests something and there's some hijinks and then everything's okay at the end and they're like ah Mulberry you're right after all and so on. It's not like that and it could so easily have been like that and this is again why I was not warming to it originally. It, it, I've not really seen a series like this for a long time where I didn't actively dislike it at first but I wasn't at all. It was very cold to it. I wasn't warming to it at all and Carl Herman's character like I say was putting me off because I thought that that's what he was going to be like he was just going to be one of these characters who um, although they, they go over well in the sitcom world and they have a positive effect on the people around them in real life people like that would be a monumental I'm just looking arse. at my notes um, here <laughs> at one point I've read is Mulberry Buttons like in Cinderella, he's, he's the yes, wacky servant. Yeah. There's, just, there's a bit of yes, written, the, the Marines bit is annoying. And there is that moment where for some reason he pretends to be a sergeant major in the Marines. And you can almost tell Carl Howman's not really sure how to play it. and It's just trying to get, get to the end of the scene. Yeah, but I ended up really, really warming to the show and being hooked on it. And it's odd because I knew in advance from, from speaking to yourself about it, I knew that we weren't going to get a conclusion. So in, 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 a, in a way, I was sort of reading a novel about which I knew that the last 10 pages had been torn out. <laughs> but nevertheless, I was still 
intrigued to see how it developed. And I haven't really seen a show like that for a long time. There have been a few things. There's been a few shows where I've not really enjoyed it and then come back to it later on and actually reevaluated it and really enjoyed it. And also there's been a, a couple of ones where I've been raving about it and saying, oh God, I wish I'd repeat that show. And then I've seen it and I've just sat through it in stony silence. That, that was, for example, what it was like. So the goodies after 20 years, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll come on to that in the future. We were we were discussing that off air the other day, but yeah, no, so uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the show, and I I liked the fact that it had more depth to it. I liked the fact that you couldn't easily sort of predict where this was going to go. Talking about series two bits being linked to and then not linked to the concept, the accident, series two episode two, because. Weirdly, that's actually also kind of disconnected from the central thrust. It's more about the nature of Mulberry as a supernatural being, and we find out he obviously doesn't have a heartbeat. Otherwise, why would he be pronounced dead? Yes, this is true. And he, probably quite wisely, will not let the doctors examine him because they've already said to him, look, we're going to make you a case study, we're going to make you famous. And that's, of course, the last thing that he wants. So he's got to get out there as fast as possible. In a way, actually, just slightly going back to what you were saying before about a series as a whole, having a logical conclusion, and then perhaps even going a little bit beyond that, I like the fact that they did have that sequence in the mortuary, because it would have been so easy if he just got up and then walked out and then said to the people around him, oh, do you know where my clothes is? And everybody panics and, and, and runs away. And then the next thing, he could have been back at the house. But it actually goes through the whole process of, yeah, how would the people who were working in the mortuary, how actually would they react? And yeah, eventually they, they'd sort of come around to the idea, well, he actually wasn't dead. There's this one thing that's just occurred to me. I just took a quick look at the last scene because I'd made some note about the last scene which actually does come back to talking about mortality and talking about Miss Farnaby. And I think they talk about, what do you see when you die? And Mulberry says he thinks it's somebody you like. We've just seen, if anybody wants to look, it should still be up on YouTube, Bob Larby talking about the, the never-written, never-shot last scene of Mulberry, which would be Miss Farnaby dies, sees Mulberry and says, I knew it was you. So that does weirdly tie in. And I am wondering if Series 3 had continued, we might see some little hints that Miss Farnaby was beginning to get an idea of what was going on. Yes, it would be unusual if it just came completely out of the blue in Episode 6 or 7. You'd think that, considering that it would have been written in that manner to be the last series, you'd think that there would be little hints throughout. I'm not really sure if Bert and Alice would have been too clued up as to what was going on with Mulberry, but I think that Miss Farnaby eventually would have realised that there was something about Mulberry, even if she couldn't put her finger on what it was. The fact that she's already been tipped off by her sister as well, the fact that her sister already yeah, said... Yeah, again, that raises the possibility presence. that it may be even not Miss Farnaby, but I have a feeling somebody else might have twigged in Series 3. We might have seen the return of the niece... Who could you have be aware of what was going to happen without it becoming kind of horrible? It'd be kind of horrible for somebody who knew Miss Farnaby to know she was going to die and not do something dramatically different. I mean, they, obviously they couldn't warn her. That would be... If Mulberry just sort of says, look, it's going to happen. It can't be stopped. I'll make sure it's very nice. 
but that would really have to change one character's actions from that point on. Well, funnily enough, the only person that I could envisage that Mulberry could confide in would be Miss Farnaby's sister, Elizabeth, the, the, the dotty sister, as opposed to Adele, who's... Uh, yeah, dotty's one word for constantly... it. Freaking annoying. Is... Yeah, 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 but um, no, Adele is, is constantly manoeuvring. She's trying to get the house off Miss Farnaby, whereas Elizabeth, because she's got a head in the clouds, basically, she's quite something of a daydreamer. I think that Mulberry could probably have told her Possibly in just like a moment of weakness, he could have just said to himself, I can't keep this to myself any longer. If he told Elizabeth, nobody would have believed Elizabeth if she'd come out of it. So it's possible that Mulberry could have told herself and, and then... Well, uh, let's yeah, face it, given really the way this thing's that... written and the last thing we see, the end of series two, is Elizabeth saying, it's Mulberry, Mulberry's the deathly presence. Series three might have started a few minutes after that, given the way that we crossed over from series one to two. Might be Mulberry giving her a lift home and saying, yeah, well, <laughs> oh, you know, her labouring the point and him giving an answer that reveals too much. Elizabeth says that she's just started her training, so to speak, uh, with regards to her psychic abilities. So it's quite possible Elizabeth would have come back with a friend who claimed to be a psychic. I was going to say, oh, but then you have to then put across the idea that psychic phenomena are real. What the hell am I talking about? Well, hey, death and springtime's one thing, but real psychics, that's pushing it. <laughs> Just wait till we get onto Goodnight Sweetheart and the laws of time travel. Oh, yes. And what's possible and what's not. We'll have a great time with that one. There's one other thing I was going to say about that episode, about the accident with the kite. This was the only point watching it where I did allow myself to indulge in a small amount of whimsy. Whereas something like Not in Your Nelly, for example, you know, the, the, the head's going bonkers with possibilities as to, to future episodes. But no, when the accident happens, they're up high and Mulberry is flying a kite, which was a promise of Miss Farnaby's to her relative has passed away. Has his accident, he's in the mortuary and so on. Now, this goes back to what we were discussing a few weeks back. And I think I've probably, I've probably brought this up on many different podcasts in the past. This idea that fundamental changes involving characters do not happen in the middle of a series. Obviously, you knew that Mulberry wasn't going to, inverted commas, die, or at least never go back to the house. You just knew that wasn't possible, because you would have a show otherwise. But just for a brief moment, I allowed myself to indulge in a bit of daydreaming as to what that would have been like. And I was thinking, okay, if he didn't ever go back to the house, and so they think he's dead, at the beginning of the next episode, where Mulberry normally sings the theme tune, you've got the music, but you've got no singing, because he's not there, and you've got the camera panning along, and it's looking at the bridge and so on, but there's nobody there walking about because he's not there. And then, for the rest of the series, you've basically just got Miss Farnaby and Bert and Alice going about everyday business, and occasionally sort of sighing and saying, it was nice when Mulberry was here, wasn't it? <sighs> But I'm not entirely sure that that could have stretched <laughs> to four episodes plus a proposed season three. You just reminded me, the bridge. The bridge is the thing that uh, Bob Larby mentions as appearing in the last scene. It hadn't occurred to me that's the same bridge, isn't it, from the beginning? That's right, yeah, he, sit, he sits upon it, yeah. And, yeah, that, that's, that's quite a moving little video of Bob Larby because of course of course he's going to become attached to, to the characters that he's writing about and it's obvious from that I think that sometimes particularly with long running shows when they've 
perhaps jumped the shark or they've, they've just for whatever reason they've gone off the boil and then they start having fundamental alterations to character. Sometimes you hear the, the writers say, oh, it was always intended like that. We always actually meant that, that, that this character was going to win the lottery or some you know, bullshit. And you just know that, that, no, that's, that, that don't give us that. But it is quite obvious, listening to Bob Larby there, that that's exactly how it was, was planned. And it is a shame that there wasn't a series free it wasn't going to be the case that you know, we're going to get commissioned and then start to think, OK, well, what are we going to do now? Of course, I mean, that was there right from the outset. And it's quite refreshing to hear that, even though we didn't get to see that first series. And like I said before, right at the outset of our discussion, in a way, I'm, I'm sort of glad that we were sort of spared the last episode because you know that it's, it's not exactly going to be a battle of laughs. But it is nice to, to just hear about a show which is so carefully crafted and conceived and, and that's just how it's supposed to be as opposed to for example shows which outstay the welcome just thinking now about how it would have ended given how meticulous they seem to have been with other shows and certainly with this show i'm guessing miss farnaby would have probably got sick if it's a seven episode series she would have probably got sick about episode five and they would have played it out in episode six I can't think what I watched recently where I knew some sort of conclusion was coming and it came in like the last five minutes. I wish I could remember that. Damn. Oh well, that's going nowhere, but you know. I'm not going to I'm not gonna reveal which show I'm talking about here because it would be a massive spoiler. But there was one particular show, which we haven't reviewed yet, we'll review it in the future, which has uh, a narrative running through it and which has, in my own opinion, a very disappointing ending and part of the the reason why i think it's so disappointing is the fact that it hasn't been trailed in advance everything that happens about the conclusion happens in the final half an hour episode and that was not my expectation at all i was sure that there was that there was going to build to this throughout the last series i've just remembered it was in loving memory not the last last episode but the last episode of the penultimate series brings about a change and it just brrrum. here's a new character here's a change goodbye what what come back you you could have planted the, the seeds the, two episodes ago please that's in the penultimate episode of no the, the last, last episode of the penultimate series oh i see oh, i see right a slight gotcha. change to the oh, format I see. yes yeah and it's all just in that last half hour here's the urgent of change here's the change thank you good night well, this is a really weird thing about this, because this particular example that I'm thinking of, this is hard to describe, but I was already disappointed with it before the last episode began. I knew how many, how many episodes were in the series, so I knew that I was about to start watching the last episode of the last series. So I was, in a way, already annoyed about the fact that there'd been no build. Unless this last episode quite unexpectedly, brought together elements of the plot of the previous five unconnected <laughs> episodes of that series, which didn't have any kind of real sort of narrative apart from the overriding narrative of the show. Yeah, I already knew right in the outset, I thought, whatever happens here, it's going to feel like an anticlimax because it wasn't given enough elbow room. So I think you're right. I think that you would have seen little hints that Miss Farnaby was perhaps slightly ill or was getting more frail or whatever but I think you would have seen that in series 3 just gradually. I think also there would have been, although they have touched on this with the episode where Miss Farnaby is redrawing up her will to include Mulberry 
and Bert and Alice are getting worried because they think that they're going to be cut out of it. I think that there would have been some suggestions as to where Bert and Alice were going to find themselves in the future. Something in passing would have been mentioned about the fact that you know, they actually had somewhere. Then again, if you're writing towards a last episode, you can actually deal with that before. That's what I'm thinking, yeah. We're in about episode maybe three or four that you would have had some sort of reference to the fact that they've got their own little cottage. They don't actually live in the big house. So they've got their own little cottage. I think Miss Farnaby's already mentioned about the fact that they've got pension provision. So you just you just remind viewers of those facts so that there isn't the suggestion that Bert and Alice were suddenly going to be homeless and jobless when Miss Farnaby died. So yeah, you just yeah, your little things like that, you just pop them in there. I'm just thinking about the detective show Monk, where when they were heading towards the last episode, they started shutting down certain ongoing characteristics and plots. And it was actually quite refreshing to be able to see that. So I said, yeah, this doesn't worry him anymore. It's great watching all these little character ticks get thrown out. It's like, yeah, we can do this now. So I'd imagine Bert and Alice, they might have even left. You can do that. Once you know you're going, it's like, yeah, we can have... Bert and Alice can win the pools and leave in episode six. We don't have to think our way out of that. We don't have to have them lose all the money and come back maybe for series four. Let's face it, trying to undo the end of series three would have been... <laughs> Imagine a, a commissioning editor. Loved it, loved the ending. Great. I think we can get one more series out of that. <laughs> I, was, I was just thinking about that. If you think that bringing back the upper hand after <laughs> the two central characters got married, if you think that's a challenge, then bringing back Mulberry when Miss Farnaby is dead and Bert and Alice don't live there anymore and Mulberry has gone on to claim you just have to have uh, the... death of the week wouldn't you you just have to have different... yeah exactly <laughs> friends it would different be like well, yeah, a... <laughs> let's see what character will make you feel real affection for over the next 27 minutes and in the 28th minute they'll die it would be like a really horrible version of highway to heaven yeah or quantum leap it would be like yeah you just start getting attached to them and then Carl Hoban just has to pull out a hammer and whack him over the head <laughs> uh, because they've got to 28 minutes and 30 seconds because by this point he's he's a much tougher nut. He doesn't get emotionally involved anymore. He he's 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 basically just a hitman. <laughs> he knows he's got a job to do. So yeah, we don't we really don't want to see Mulberry twenty years later, do we? Uh, like we came back to the live abroad sort of <laughs> legacy of Richard Perrin. Because we sort of know that that Mulberry probably would have if he if he did stick on the, the path as he's supposed to and, and did become Death Mark Two or whatever it is he's supposed to be, then yeah, he's just gonna be a ruthless, cold blooded killer and, and not the, the lovable Jacko type character that we, we, we know. <laughs> Having said that, there is a suggestion online that the premise of Mulberry about the fact that his father is deaf, that this is loosely based on Greek mythology and that idea suggests that Mulberry could have been drawn in one of two directions he could have followed the path of his father death or he could have been driven in the path of his mother springtime now in that interview on YouTube Bob Larby does say how it was supposed to end that Miss Farnaby dies but she dies of natural causes so there's no suggestion that well this is the thing that bothers me in series one episode five death mentions that the colonel who came to dinner he said i just opened the door and let him through there's no real suggestion that 
death actually offs people. It's just like, it was his time. I knew he was going to die. And yet in episode, <laughs> the episode earlier, he's almost suggesting of ways Mulberry can off somebody. So it's almost like Mulberry has no option. It's like, if Miss Farnaby dies without Mulberry's assistance, then he, she must die with death's assistance. I don't think anybody can die with, <laughs> without death's cooperation. So it would then it would then be a big yeah, kick off um, between Mulberry and Death, wouldn't it? I think no. Mulberry presumably comes to accept his job. Yeah, there's a couple of things there because one, the episode where Alice is, is visiting the the signalman, again, Death says there's no point. He's not going to be there. Yeah, that was a front kicker, wasn't it? Yeah, but also the episode where Miss Farnaby has a guest for dinner. And, and oh yes, herself. That's another one where it's like, yeah, we can actually ring a few more ideas out of this. But this is this is the thing. Mulberry's going bonkers that whole evening because he thinks that Death is going to do the deed, and it's only when when he actually s- says to Mulberry that he wasn't. He just wanted to meet her. He wanted to to be around the place. It was just by chance that he puts Mulberry's mind at ease. But of course, yeah, so... so now that's another interesting thing about Series 2 is Miss Farnaby just invites him. Miss Farnaby does more of the plot movement in Series 2 than Mulberry does. She decides to go places, she decides to do this. And Death doesn't even seem to sort of say, oh, I I wheedle my way into her affections and got her to invite... She just seems to have taken it upon herself to invite Mr. Smith. Even then, I think the whole thing that... Since I've been in the house, there has to be a death before midnight. It seemed a bit like a kind of, oh, how do we get a big bang crash ending out of this? Do you know what? I, I don't want to come across as a smart arse, but as soon as he said that line, I thought, mouse. It all goes back again to the idea of, okay, well, there are the four central characters in the house. There is no way that Bert is just going to drop dead at the kitchen table <laughs> yes. and then not be there for the rest of this series. It's not going to happen. We need to actually, just as, a, as a, an offshoot, it would be actually very interesting to do that for a future podcast, instances in which there have been fundamental alterations to situations and to cast members, plot members, in the middle of a series. And the only example I can think of that springs to mind is Francis Delatour leaving Rising Damp halfway through series two, and then of course returning for series three. But otherwise, I'm at a loss to think of any examples where you are suddenly thrown by something and you think, I mean, I'm sure it's happened in drama. I think it happened in an episode of an early episode of Spooks. I think a character was killed off, and I think maybe the second episode, the first series. But yeah, it doesn't happen in, uh, in, in sitcom. There's a couple of cases of Callan. I'm not even going to tell you because there's a couple no, of cases say, of yeah. Callan where a change comes and it's a whoa. A couple of more things about this um, Death Comes to Dinner episode. When Mulberry opens the door and it's his dad, I was waiting for the audience to go, <sighs> and they don't. They give, it's big, get a big laugh. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Maybe they're just very obedient of the laugh signs. There's something quite ever-decreasing circles about that episode. There is an episode of ever-decreasing circles where somebody turns up and Martin panics about it and is trying to prevent these two things clashing. I don't don't want to spoil that because you haven't seen ever-decreasing circles, have you? And we're really going to get our teeth into that. Yes. Well, that's the thing about... I don't know if it's just because I've watched a lot of Esmond and Larby stuff. Maybe I need to watch even more. I wanted to talk about DNA 
in characters written by the same writers. I'm just thinking about places where you can spot characteristics getting passed between characters. Occasionally, between Bert and Alice, they're a little bit good life. There's one exchange, and I haven't written it down, something to do with biscuits. I, I kept my notes a bit too loosely, I guess. That sounded like a line from The Good Life. Yes, there are similarities there. The, the, the married couple doing all the tasks around the house. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess you could say that. But then stepping outside to other shores, I think it's been said, towards the end of The Good Life, Tom gets less reasonable. I know there was an interview, I know Richard Bryce has said, I have a feeling one or more of the writers has said that Tom isn't actually that nice of a guy. I did hear an interview of Richard Bryce in which he described Tom as a bastard because he really thought that he was just being very, very selfish in the fact that he was giving up the rat race and giving up all his material goods and making life a bloody sight tougher for Barbara who's gone along with it, willingly, at the end of episode one, but nevertheless, he didn't think that was really on. He thought that was a selfish act by Tom. And I think towards the end, he's written that way. Or just occasionally. He, he gets an idea in his head and he will not budge from it. I think it's been said that Martin in ever-decreasing circles takes on those unreasonable characteristics and doesn't even have Tom's ability to relax or joke. And then another one, it's only written by Bob Larby, I think as time goes by, which is very, very fluffy and gentle. The character of Alistair in that, I'm sure, is one of those cases where an actor bends the character. Just occasionally, somebody gets cast in something and they're too good or too bad at their job or just their own personal characteristics, the shape of their head, changes how the character moves from the page to the screen. I think initially Alistair's supposed to be a lot more of a jerk than he comes across. And there's just something not quite Peter Blakeish enough <laughs> about Philip Bretherton, who plays Alistair. He just he gives a slightly softer, not exactly bumbling, but not 100% self-absorbed and self-confident. And then once the character people take to him, because he's got that slightly softer side, they start writing towards that... And he starts to take on some characteristics of Paul from Ever Decreasing Circles. Because he's the guy who has a friend who knows what to do. He has a plan. If he doesn't know how to do it, he knows somebody who does. He's a bit more full of himself than Paul. But that's something to talk about maybe some other time. Because there must be other writers where you can kind of draw these little diagrams. That character, they obviously liked writing that characteristic and based that character around that characteristic, and then they found that useful to inject into that character. Yes, I mean, there are a lot of examples of character traits appearing frequently and writer's traits, and also there are sometimes examples of shows being remade, for example. You and I were just discussing off-air previously The Incredible Mr. Tanner, Brian Murphy and Roy Kinnear, which was actually a remake of a Ronnie Barker Playhouse episode previously. So yeah, you do get situations where you can sort of draw a sort of family tree, a sort of comedy connection style map between various shows. Just as one little aside before we wrap up our discussion on Mulberry, Carl Homan and Tony Selby had been in the same place 
at the same time previously, some, I think, about 14 years or so earlier, also scripted by Esmond and Larvey, which was the last series of the RAF sitcom Gets Them In. But that was not originally Carl Howman's part, that was originally Robert Lindsay's part, when he then went off to do Citizen Smith, and Carl Howman took the role of J.K. Smith, opposite Tony Selby's Corporal. I just watched an episode of that before we began our recording tonight, and that was a funny one because I think we were both of the opinion that we weren't really that fussed about it. Yeah, and but then again, I feel the same way about Please Sir. It used to turn up, I think, on Sunday mornings on Yorkshire. It was like, yeah, it's all right, but yeah. This is the thing because we, we've spoken before about shows in which you just like the characters and or the situation. <laughs> Yes, well, you know why that idea got brought up, don't you? No, I, I knew you, you, you've lost me there. You, your laugh there... Come on, was what this, does it all come back to? Your what laugh does it always that, come back to? Well, it always comes back to spats, but... I'm, My I'm, only excuse for watching spats, even though, let's face it, I didn't laugh, <laughs> was I like the burger bar. Well, yeah... It reminds is, me of when I was that weird age where... I wasn't really old enough to drink, or maybe the pubs were doing ID checks that day. <laughs> the cafe culture hadn't really exploded by that point. There wasn't really a Starbucks thing. So burger bars were often one of the few places you could meet after all the shops had shut. So it kind of tied in with that, and I like the decor. I like the <laughs> symbol. So that's why I keep... Just that's be why on, just when be they had the old school it. weekend, I had to get hold of a copy of that episode of Spats to watch it again. I don't know why you can't just be honest about the fact that you think this Bats is the funniest show that's ever been made. And one of these days you will own up to that on, on, on the podcast. One of these days I will find the episode that proves that. I haven't even <laughs> proved it to myself. <laughs> no, I was, was going to say about Get Some In is that it reminds me a, a little bit of a low low in that I don't really identify with the situation. A low low is one of those shows where it always throws me the fact that I really don't enjoy it at all because I really enjoy I being served. I've got all the discs on the shelf over there and yet I've never, ever been able to get into low low. And it's just the fact that I just find the the situation and the premise either unappealing or just not particularly interesting. And I'm like that with Get Some In. I've watched a couple of episodes of Get Some In, which is not really enough to form a proper opinion of. I need to give it more time. But so far, I'm just not really that fussed about the situation slash characters to really care about it. Might change my mind about that. Maybe I'll be raving about it in a future podcast. Whereas with Mulberry... I liked it. I warmed to it. I warmed to the people. I warmed to the characters. I warmed to the situation. And so that was one of the elements that, that kept me watching. <laughs> and the same applies to Don't Drink the Water with Blakey and his sister. What? What's appealing about that? I, 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 nothing. I was just making it up. Um, but, okay, uh, well, I can never be sure with you. Well, yeah. No, I didn't make up the show. You have Odd Man Out. By the way, next time you and I do one of the Odd Man Out, are you up for Odd Man Out? Well, this is the thing. DCT keeps on saying 
that he's right about it. I haven't actually been more forceful in saying I'd like to do this show because I, I, you know, I canvass your opinion and and Bogdanovich's opinion, DCT's opinion. But I say, you know, guys, what shows would you particularly like to discuss on, on the podcast? And DCT said to me the other day, "You haven't actually written your list." And I said, "Oh, I don't want to, don't want to impose my taste on everybody." But yeah, no. Whenever, whenever I eventually become forceful enough to say, "Look, damn it, we're doing Odd Man Out," then you know that's going to be the next podcast. Okay, there well, that's what go. I'm saying. Right, Odd Man Out. Yes. That's on the list. Odd Man Out will be right, that's going right out. to the top of the list. When we come back after a little summer break, Odd Man Out is the show that we're going to do. How's that? Right. And Odd Man Out is a show which I should be absolutely raving about and found a crushing disappointment. And you said yet, the right way was better. Did I actually say that? Yeah, I think you said the right way was the show that you wanted Odd Man Out to be. Now, that's, that is a funny one because I might as well address this just now address it as if as if yeah as if the media has been waiting for me to speak in this subject <laughs> but no having now seen every episode of the right way i did stick to it stick to it i did stick with it to the end but ultimately i found it disappointing because the bits that i liked in it were i think specifically episodes two and three where there was more physical comedy what you might call you might even call the kind of comedy that you're perhaps more accustomed to seeing from continental Europe. The kind of thing that I would expect to see if I just accidentally landed on a German TV channel one evening. And there were some bits and pieces between David Haig and Robert Dawes, which were just the height of farce. You know, the, the, the faffing about in the bathroom and the cleaner walks in uh, and shouts, oh, what, what are you two up to and all this kind of thing. You know, just Brian Rick-style nonsense. And that appealed to me. I liked those bits and pieces. But in the later episodes, it was much, much more the dialogue and, and the dialogue wasn't particularly appealing. Okay, um, I'm just checking. As of recording, Brian Ricks is still alive. I think he's going to sue. Do you reckon so? <laughs> How dare you attach my name to that? <laughs> well, if you didn't catch my name at the beginning of the podcast, my name is Mark Lawson. I can be contacted <laughs> care of BBC4, Wood Lane, W12, 8QT. But yeah, so... No, I, I did not. Ultimately, I found it disappointing because um, the premise of the show itself wasn't doing it for me and the sort of embarrassing dialogue with the character that was trying to use all the street slang and what have you that was cringe making so yeah what uh, show I'm are not, we talking not... about now the right the right way what show did you think i was one... wondering if there was a character who used a lot of street slang in odd man out uh, no, God, no, no, nothing like that. Well, the thing, the thing about Odd Man Out is, I don't want to preempt. Or Are we going to have enough not, to say about it? We might have to double it up with "Take a Letter, Mr. Jones." Well, yeah, maybe we'll do the related sitcoms of the Are You Being Served family. So we'll do Odd Man Out, "Take a Letter, Mr. Jones." Thank you, by the way, to everybody who, after our last podcast, actually went off and watched the opening titles of various Brian Izzard shows. I know that some people went on to, to have a wee peek at Undemanding, for example. <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, I think that just about wraps it up for Mulberry. It wraps it up for the sitcom club for the summer. It does, indeed. Yeah, this goes out for the summer. Fear not, listeners, because we will still be working away on all manner of lovely sitcom club-related projects over the summer. So no holidays for us. Got that, Ocho? 
we will be back in a relatively short space of time, probably around about the middle of August or thereabouts. And uh, yeah, our first episode back will be the outrageous and massively underrated Britain's best loved sitcom, Odd Man Out, and other related Are You Being Served ancillary projects. In the meantime, from myself, Hey Home and Can't Co. And from me, your old pal Ocho. It's a good night from him, man. It's a goodbye from me. Good night, good night. <laughs>